take those Bibles out and turn with me to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. It's one thing for us as believers to understand that our identification with Jesus means that we have died to sin. That's Romans 6 verse number 2. It's another thing for believers to count or to reckon that reality to be true. That's Romans 6 verse 11. But it is something completely else for the believer to deal with the sin nature that remains within. This is the internal conflict in the area of sanctification that every believer faces. In verses 1 through 6 of chapter 7, we see the relationship between the believer and the law. In verses 7 through 13, we will now look at the relationship that exists between the law and sin. And Paul has already established in chapters 3 through 5 that the law cannot save an individual. In chapter 6, he's established that the law does not sanctify us. And then in chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, he's told us that the law no longer condemns those who believe in Jesus. And so he uses the marriage analogy in verses 1 through 6. And this was a, a, a hypothetical illustration. But beginning in verse number 7, and through the rest of the chapter, Paul is going to get personal. Paul changes his language now. Now he's going to be using the, the first person singular to talk and to tell about his experience. And so Paul begins this section right by answering an anticipated question that he thought his readers might ask him. So, so look there in chapter 7, verse number 7. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. This morning, it is my desire to unpack with you four facts about the law. Four facts about the law. The first fact is revealed to us in verse number 7, and that fact is the law reveals sin. So fact number 1, the law reveals sin. Paul asked the question, is the law sin? And his response was a, a very strong denial. He says, may it never be. Now, I, I want to be clear. I think this was a legitimate question for Paul to ask and, and answer. Because if you begin to uh, consider all that Paul has said up to this point in respect to the law, you would understand how this question might be thrown at him. And so I'm not going to read all of the chapters leading up to this, but, but let me highlight some of these things that have already been said about the law. In Romans chapter 2, I mean, your Bibles are open, so go ahead and look there. Go back a few pages to chapter 2. In verse number 12, 
Well, we see that the law judges and condemns. It says, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Then uh, go down to chapter 2, verse number 29. There we see that the law does not make a person a believer. It says, but he is a Jew who, who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not through the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. And so, looking into chapter 3, we see that the law cannot make us righteous, nor does the law make us acceptable unto God. Look at verse number 20. Chapter 3, verse 20. It says, Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. He says it very similarly in, in verse number 27 of the same chapter. There he says, oh, where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? He says, no, uh, but by a law of faith. Uh, go up a, a, a few verses. Look there in verses 21 and 22. Uh, there we see the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is, is to serve, uh, is, to, is to reveal that the law doesn't save us, Rather, it bears witness to the reality that we are in desperate need of the righteousness of God. And so verses 21 and 22 says, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction Turn with me to chapter 4. He addresses it so many times. Chapter 4, verse number 3. We'll start in verse number 2. We see that the law does not justify a person. In verse 2, it gives the illustration for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. If you keep on looking in chapter 4, by the time you look at verse number 13, verse number 13 says, For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants, that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So here, Paul's saying that the law is not the way that a person receives the promise of God. That way is by faith. In verse number 15, he says, For the law brings them out wrath, but where there is no law, there also is no violation. So, the law works wrath in that it accuses us of sin and condemns us. Going to chapter 5. It's all over the place. Chapter 5, verse number 20. It says that the law causes sin to actually multiply in our lives. Verse number 20 says the law came in 
so that the transgressions would increase. But where sin increased, amen, grace abounded all the more. Then in verse number 14 of chapter 6, this is just a few weeks ago, verse number 14, it says that the law enslaves us. The law brings us in bondage. And he says in verse number 14, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. And then, the beginning of chapter 7, it says it again. In fact, in verse number 1, it says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. One more place. Bear with me. Look at verse number 5. The law arouses us to sin. Verse 5 says, For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our bodies to bear fruit for death. Think about it. In light of all of this, a person legitimately might begin to wonder and to question the value of God's law. If such a law lays such a burden of sin upon us, then then what good is it? Is it evil? Well, Scripture answers that question very loudly and very clearly. It says, may it never be. In other words, such a thought that the law is bad, such a thought is far from the truth. And so, to prove this, Paul goes on to illustrate this truth in a very personal nature. He says, on the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. I think it's interesting, at least it's interesting to me, that of all the sins that, that Paul addressed, he, he, he doesn't use murder as his illustration he doesn't use stealing or, or lying or adultery as his illustration. No, instead of those sins, he uses coveting. Coveting. Coveting is the, the last of the, the Ten Commandments. It differs from the other nine in that coveting is an inward attitude rather than an outward action. In fact, coveting leads to the breaking and the violation of all other nine commandments. And so coveting is a, is a subtle sin that most people fail to recognize in their own lives. But the Word of God reveals it. And that's a beautiful thing. You can look at the example that's found in Mark chapter 10. There we find the, the, the story of the, the rich young ruler. Here's a great example of how Jesus uses the law to reveal the sin and to show the need for salvation. This young rich ruler was, was very moral on the outward and what other people can see by his behavior. But he never faced or dealt with the sin inward. Jesus does not tell him about the law 
so that the law would save him. No, Jesus tells him about the law because the man failed to realize his own sinfulness. So while it may have been true that the man never committed adultery, while it may have been true that he never stole from anyone, that he never gave a false witness, while it may be true that he never dishonored his parents, Jesus goes straight to the heart and says, what about coveting? He does so when he, when he tells them to sell his goods and, and to give to the poor. And the man's reaction was he, he left in great sorrow. The commandment, thou shalt not covet, revealed to him what a sinner he truly was. And instead of admitting his sin, he, he rejected the, the Savior. And as far as we know, never repented of that sin. We understand that the law of God reveals the fact of our sin. And, and without the law, we would live in ignorance, not truly knowing what is right or what is wrong. So the knowledge of sin is a great and glorious thing. The purpose of God's law is to reveal our sin. And in revealing our sin, it also reveals just how desperate we need salvation. Apart from God's law, we would never fully realize or understand just how great our need is of a Savior. God's law reveals our imperfection. Paul illustrates this reality by declaring, I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. In other words, because God had disclosed unto Paul His divine standard of righteousness, then when we have been enabled or enabled to identify what sin is, and sin is a, a violation or a breaking of God's holy divine standards, and so Paul has already mentioned, or at least alluded to this truth throughout his letter. In chapter 3, verse number 20, again, he says, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Chapter 4, verse number 15, says that the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is no violation. Chapter 5, verse 13, says until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. And please understand that Paul is not speaking about our general awareness of right or wrong. In case you're wondering, like what about those that, that have never heard God's revealed law unto man? Well, according to the Scripture, Paul has already addressed this reality. And according to Scripture, specifically according to Romans chapter 2, Verse number 15, even those that have not read the revealed standard of God, even there it says His law is written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Therefore, all men are without excuse. So here... When Paul speaks about the law, he's speaking about knowledge of the full extent of the depravity of our sin. 
And this, this knowledge has been revealed to us through God's holy commandments or through His law. And so the law makes us aware of what sin is and makes us aware that we are all sinners in need of a Savior. Sometimes I think we should just pause on that point instead of rushing through it. Hear me again. You're all sinners in need of a Savior. None of us live up to the holy, perfect standard of God. We all need help. So does this make the law a bad thing? In no way. Absolutely not. Because this is exactly what the law is supposed to do. Unpleasant as it may be, it is a necessary and, and holy function of the Word of God. So, so the law reveals sin. Fact number two, uh, the law also arouses sin. You'll see that in verses 8 and 9. There he says, but sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. Paul is making it clear that the law itself is not sinful, nor is the law responsible for our sin. It is the sinful desire that already exists in a person's heart. It is that sinful desire that takes the opportunity through the commandment or through the law to produce every kind of coveting one could imagine. To produce all kinds of of sin in our lives. That term, opportunity, is the translation of a Greek word that's used for military language. It's talking about establishing a bridgehead or establishing a strong position in preparation for making an attack. And so, sin uses the law to get a point of attack against us. And so the commandment, do not covet, does not cause people to covet. But it does arouse within us every kind of covetous desire. And so then it's our desire that seeks for and seizes the opportunity to do the very thing that we're forbidden to do. We see it playing out all, all, all the time. We could go out on our property and stick signs that say, keep off the grass. And guess what's going to happen? People are now going to start wandering on the grass. Why? Because the sign specifically says, keep off the grass. We're violators at heart. When we're told that we can't do something, it stirs within us a rebellion to go against that. You can't tell me what to do. You're not the boss of me. But Paul is saying that apart from the law, sin is dead. Paul is not saying that sin has not existed apart from the law because we know that that's not true. Instead of regarding the law as a warning, sin regards law as a welcome or an invitation. 
Back in chapter 5, he already said, therefore, uh, in verse 12, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. I want you to understand, when Paul says that sin is dead, what he is saying is, not that sin didn't exist, but, but what he's saying is that sin is somewhat dormant or, or not fully active in our lives. Sin, sin does not overwhelm the sinner as it does when the law is revealed or made known unto them. And so already he tells us that the law reveals our sin. The law arouses sin. Verses 10 and 11, we'll see that the law reveals the fact of condemnation and death. The law reveals the fact of condemnation and death. Verse number 10 says, And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death to me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. Sin deceives people by misusing the law. Sin is filled with all kinds of false promises and deceptions. For instance, sin promises to satisfy our desire even more than it did last time. And yet it comes up empty. Sin promises that our actions will be kept hidden from other people so that no one will ever know. And yet the reality is the eyes of the Lord search to and fro. He's everywhere, all times, at all places. Sin promises that we won't have to worry about the consequences of our actions. But that's a lie. Like, don't buy into the lie. I mean, that's a line that has existed all the way from the garden. I mean, you go back to, to Genesis chapter 3 from the very beginning. In the Garden of Eden, the serpent deceived Eve by, by taking her eyes off of the freedom that she had and placed it upon the one restriction or the one limitation that God had given. And ever since that time, We've all embraced that, that rebellious attitude, the one that kind of welcomes in and pursues violations against God's holy standard. Tell me not to do it, then I'm going to be inclined to do the thing you told me not to do. Had you never told me not to do it, I probably never would have given it a thought. But from the very beginning, we have this nature within us that, that is aroused to do the things that we have been forbidden to do. Adam and Eve, they died spiritually when they disobeyed God's command. That disobedience brought about a spiritual death and separation. One that has been passed on to every single one of us. Paul was spiritually separated from God. We have all spiritually separated from Him. Romans chapter 3, verse number 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
Then Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the law, like the law is a good thing, but, but the reality about God's law is, yes, one, it reveals our sin. Two, it arouses sin. Three, the law reveals the fact of condemnation and death. And then four, the, the law shows the sinfulness of sin. The, the law reveals just how bad it is. Look at verse number 12. It says, so then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin, in order that I might be shown to be sin, by effecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. Well, Paul's answering the same question from verse number 7, is the law sin? This time, he declares that not only is the law not sin, the fact of the matter is, God's law is holy. God's law is holy, righteous, and good. In fact, throughout the remainder of this chapter, Paul will continue to, to praise God's law in, in verse number 14. He'll say that the law is spiritual. Again, in verse number 16, he'll again say that God's law is good. In fact, Paul's praise of the law reminds me of David's love for the law. The the text that comes to my mind comes from Psalm 19. In Psalm 19, David writes these words from, from verses 7 through 11. He says that the law of the Lord is perfect, Restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous all together. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and the drippings of the honeycomb. In verse number 11, moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. The fact that the law reveals our sin, arouses sin, reveals uh, the fact of condemnation and death, Those facts do not make the law the cause of our spiritual death. Uh, Let me try to illustrate this point for you, right? The law isn't the cause of our spiritual death. Our sin is that cause, right? So when someone is justly convicted and sentenced, we'll pick murder, all right? I'll try to pick a sin that I'm thinking no one's guilty of in this room. Because if I say something that's too common, then I'll get the comments, well, you're talking about me, aren't you, Pastor? I'm assuming that we don't have a murderer here, but Sermon on the Mount, Jesus would say, you hate your brother, or anyway, murder. When someone is 
justly convicted and sentenced for murder, there's no fault in the law. There's no fault found in those that were upholding the law. No fault rests upon the violator of the law. The law is good. It is the breaking of the law that is evil. And so it is sin, not the law. It is sin that brings about death. And it is only through the law that sin can be accurately identified for what it is. So it is not God's law that is the cause of our spiritual death. No, our spiritual death is the result of sin. The ultimate purpose of the law was to drive people to faith in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus was the only one who could perfectly and did perfectly fulfill the demands of the law. So the purpose was ultimately to drive us to faith in Jesus. And that's not my opinion. That's the Word of God. Galatians chapter 3, verse number 24. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. Law is great value in, in leading us to faith. And, and some might falsely think, well, if the law serves as a purpose to help me to understand my sin and, and lead me to Jesus, then once I've met Jesus and submitted and surrendered my life unto Him, then I have no purpose or need for the law. And I would say, oh, that's not true at all. Because after salvation... Believers still need continual exposure to the divine standards of our God. We need this exposure so that we might clearly see the sin that's in our own lives. So that upon seeing that sin, we would confess the sin. That and not only would we confess that sin, that we would repent from our sinful actions, from our sinful thoughts, from our sinful words, or, or from our sinful attitudes. And upon doing that, then we might declare with the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse number 11, that says, Your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. And knowing if we do sin or when we sin, oh, there's still hope for us. And may we all embrace the promise of 1 John chapter 1, verse number 9. It says that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh, the law has great value for those that are separated from God. And the law has great value for those of us who believe in Jesus Christ, His Son. But far too often, we fail to take the time to, to rightly apply God's standards to our lives. I think a lot of times we try to keep ourselves so busy so that we never slow down to truly consider, Father, is my life the way it's supposed to be? Are there things in my life that I'm doing and that I'm saying that dishonor you? 
Is there a commitment in my life that you desire from me? My fear is a lot of times we we move in and out of worship service gatherings like this far too quickly. Sometimes we would take the we we use the the bulletins as like a like a program and now we were singing that song check. We did that prayer check. We did these songs check. We listened to them speak check. All right, good. Now I can, can get out of here and leave. Far too often, I think if we were honest, we would admit that more Sundays than others that we leave church in the same condition as we arrived at church without taking the time to reflect and rightly apply his his word to our our lives i pray that today will be different let's pray as we move into our time of response i'm curious if we could just agree to a a few things i'm asking every head to be bowed and every eye to be closed no one's looking around this is just between you in me. I'm wondering, will you stop pre- pretending like there are no issues in your life? Will you stop acting as though everything is perfect in your world? Let me put it this way. Raise your hand if you're willing to admit that, that you have areas in your life that you're in desperate need of the intervention of God. If that's you, just raise your hand. You're willing to admit that. I need God to intervene or to move. Put them down. Here's a harder question. Raise your hand again if you would agree. One, first of all, if you would welcome the Holy Spirit to, to give an inventory of yourself? And, and are you willing to, to prayerfully search your heart uh, or, or your attitude so that you might confess your sin, repent from that sin, and walk in newness of life? If you're willing to say, yes, Holy Spirit, make known unto me what I need to do in this moment, would you just raise your hand? You put it down. For those that aren't willing to raise their hand, i got to say, I don't even know why you're here. That's harsh. I, I, I understand. I hope that you come to church so that you could celebrate and worship our Savior and, and so that you could receive His instruction into your heart and lives and that you might rightly apply it to your life so that you can live in a way that honors and glorifies Him in all things. If you're just here because you think it's expected of you without fully committing to it, you're missing the point. You're missing the purpose. What will your response be this morning? Will you come to the altar to pray? Will you fall on your knees and cry out to the Father? Will you submit and surrender your life unto Him? 
Will you come today and commit to being baptized? Do you come today seeking to to join a a church? What's your decision in this moment so that when you leave this place, you'll be different than how you came? Oh, Father, break our our pride. Grant us a, a humbleness in spirit, Father. Help us to know the the offense that's in our lives. God, help us to to have the courage and the conviction to confess our sins, to repent, to walk in the newness of life. Father, help us this morning. Help us to respond to your word in a way that honors and glorifies you.